So one photo that was continually presented in interviews was what people called the death photo, which was a kind of collection of soldiers stood smiling at the camera, often in their desert gear in, in Afghan or Iraq, and they'd go through one by one and talk about who, who each person was, where they are now, and, and whether they made it home, or if things happened to them, to them during that transition, and, and maybe people took their own lives in civilian life as well. So it opened up quite raw conversations. Hi, I'm Naomi Murphy, and this is the Locked Up Living podcast, where we talk with a wide range of people about harsh aspects of institutional life. We also explore some of the ways to overcome them and to grow and develop. I'm David Jones. So join us every Wednesday morning, six o'clock UK time, for a fresh podcast. Today we're welcoming Hannah Wilkinson. Hannah recently joined the University of Nottingham as Assistant Professor of Criminology and is a member of the Criminal Justice Research Centre. Prior to that, she was a lecturer in criminology at Keele University. Hannah's research interests lie in the areas of war, state crime and social harm. In particular, she is interested in the complex implications of 21st century conflict for former military personnel. Good morning and welcome, Hannah. Good morning. Thank you very much for having me. It's very nice to be here. <laughs> Hannah, what, what led to you becoming a criminologist and in particular the, your interest in former military personnel? Um, yes, I mean, a, a good question. Um, I'm still not entirely sure <laughs> how I've ended up where I am, but um, there's a, a few points that I can identify anyway, I suppose. The first is uh, I originally wanted to be a criminal barrister um, and work in the in the legal system in that sense. And during my degree, I kind of saw more and more insight into how the kind of criminal punishment system works and, and the types of justice that are available to people or not. And kind of decided, actually, I'd, I'd rather be on, on the kind of other side and, and actually in a space where I can be quite critical of those systems. So I was very much drawn to criminology as a student in that way um, and then continued on to do my master's in, in criminology and criminal justice uh, and then my PhD in criminology as well. There's a, I suppose a bigger picture behind all that which is with my family history and I'm sure we'll come on to that uh, as the conversation goes on but I've kind of always been trained I suppose as a, as a human to, to question and challenge from being as young as I can remember so I think those the kind of family history around social justice and struggle um, especially with state institutions in terms of resistance has guided that entry in, into criminology. Within my research and the area of former military personnel that's again something that is, is grounded in my own personal history. I was formerly married to a former soldier I was I never knew him in the in the military but as I was doing my degree uh, and masters there was these kind of stories that kept coming up from both him and and friends about how if it wasn't for the military they'd be in prison and so as a student I thought this is this is really interesting you know um so I started to I did a small project for my undergraduate research where I talked to a, a small number of veterans uh, and then it's grown from there really um there was there wasn't much literature back then 2011 uh, that kind of year um, and it's now become it's still an under-researched area but there's a lot more focus on it and, and rightly so so that's how I've kind of ended up 
here, I suppose. <laughs> that, I think that's really interesting. And um, I've heard lots of people who've been in the forces make similar comments about mm. how being in the military saved them. And mm. um, my own dad joined the Air Force because of uh, that was the only option for a job in Liverpool yeah. at, at the time. Um, and feeling like that offered a, a way out of mm. um, poverty, really, I guess. Um, so it's yeah. interesting to see those themes um, come through in your in your research yeah definitely and and as you've said you know that it's often like, it's a key theme with the people that I speak to anyway that the military offers this kind of escape almost out of these socio-economic conditions that are kind of outside of control depending on, on where you're born in the area that you live in um, and it does do that you know tem- at least temporarily it, it does offer that that kind of route out um, and that I found I still find inc- incredibly interesting and I look at resources and the way that those work, and again, I think we'll we'll come on to that. But um, yeah, it's the, there's a lot in there about how the military is a kind of site of society, but also not. It's quite removed and detached in many ways. Um, so yeah, it's interesting. You've seen that as well in in your own kind of experience. Yeah. Academics and service providers often refer to former ex-military personnel as veterans. Mm. Do you think that's skewed the way that we think about people who've been in the forces in terms of what their needs are? Yeah, I, th- I think it has. Um, and I think there's still a long way to go in terms of that, that word veteran. Um, it's a term that the people that I spoke to often rejected, um, even though, I mean, the UK definition is pretty much anybody that served one day in the armed forces is classified as a veteran. So we're not talking necessarily people who've gone out on tours or they've completed the basic training. It's kind of any contact or, or touch with, with that institution, you know, the armed forces uh, and the various things that make them up. Um, but there seems to be more of a kind of cultural problem, I think, around the term veteran, that it's still anchored to World War II. Um, and so then our vision and our kind of image of who a veteran is is still is still connected to that conflict so people often say you know I'm not an old man no I'm not a veteran um or no you know I don't go and wear my uniform on veterans day so I'm not a veteran um or people that I've talked to don't identify as that because they've not necessarily been posted to an area of conflict so there's a lot of complexity in who that term applies to and a lot of those that I spoke to resisted the term partly in, in how the state used that term veteran as well and the kind of connections of, of pride and nation um, that sometimes conflict with, with the violence that they've delivered and seen. So it's a very interesting term that I try and use briefly, but I try and use many different terms as much as I can. So I try and use, um, you know, former military personnel, ex-armed forces, employees, as well as I, I'm very critically use the term veteran offender, uh, not as a term that I like, um, but d- to kind of unpack what that means for people. Um, so th- I think there is a need to expand how we understand veteran, especially when we're pitching services at former military personnel and they might reject that term. Um, and I do think it has created barriers to help and support, especially when it's pitched alongside images of people in uniform, which veterans in, in the community don't wear uniform, you know, that they're, they're civilians, in, at least by definition then. Um, so yeah, I, I hope that answers your question. I think there's a lot to go, a lot of way to go. 
as you were talking, it, it was very thought provoking because it it's, makes it makes you wonder about the specialist services that are pitched at veterans, and are they pitched purely at people who have PTSD, PTSD as a consequence of conflict, or are they aimed more generically at former services ex services personnel? Um, and then also uh, potentially that poses a barrier to people seeking out the services that that they might actually benefit from i guess yeah definitely um i think the the entanglement of of post traumatic stress disorder ptsd and and veteran identities and services uh, has become a a problem for me anyway and, and those that i spoke to because it's it's effectively medicalized transition in that the only way that people might access support or justifications for accessing support are because of of mental health struggles and while that is of course relevant and important and when we need that space and we need those services pitched towards that there's a lot of I would probably argue the majority of veterans might experience struggle in more ordinary ways that might not necessarily be PTSD um, but that are nonetheless connected to their military service in in a variety of ways so I think the pitching of services through this kind of medicalised PTSD lang- kind of lens of a veteran, does put people off. Um, and especially when we think about the, color tr- the culture uh, of military training that is almost opposed to help-seeking in many ways. As a soldier, you've got to be quite strong, and the term resilience is often used. Um, so when then people leave, they've, they've spent however many years or a portion of their life kind of actively resisting help and and that being a marker of success as a soldier and then coming back to a lot of services that require people to opt in so take the initiative to kind of say I need help I need support and and reach out and be vulnerable in ways that maybe don't always sit right or, or, or well with their previous training and experience so yeah the the PTSD is very important um and it's often been framed through kind of a, vi- a victim lens almost, where, where people are victims of PTSD. Um, but sometimes it obscures uh, some of the kind of more frequent experiences, I think. And you, and you, um, you talk in your research about ex-forces personnel tending to be identified either as criminals or as victims. Could you, could you say a little bit more about that? Yeah, of course. Um, that's partly connected to criminological literature. There's still quite an under-researched uh, area in terms of veteran experiences, but what does exist seems to fall within two main uh, frames, and that is, like you've said, kind of criminalised veterans and, and victims. We've mentioned a little bit about victims and PTSD. That's one of the main ways that, that people are framed uh, in the literature, at least, and, and media, I suppose, that they're suffering from this kind of individualised mental uh, suffering, which which arguably re- removes the state and, and these wider institutions within the conversations. Um, in terms of criminalised veterans, understandably, I suppose, criminology is focused on people that have been imprisoned, mainly those that have committed violent and, and sexual-related offences. And yet there's this kind of void in the middle with the majority of people that don't kind of fit into either of these camps, so to speak, that that aren't really the focus of, of research. And I, I often refer to those as kind of inv- invisible veterans or invisibilized veterans that we've we've focused on the two extremes. 
while the middle area and, and what might lead people into those experiences is, is somewhat neglected. Um, so part of my research is to broaden out criminology's focus anyway on, on former military personnel, but also in a wider sense that we've got a lot of uh, nuance and complexity around what transition means and it doesn't necessarily result in these, in these extreme outcomes. It's interesting. It also reminded me of it. We've had a very recent conversation with Dominique Moran and Jennifer, mm. Jennifer Turner about prison, prison officers with a history yeah. of, of being in the forces. And that, that was interesting in terms of the assumption of mm-hmm. what went with um, a military history when, in fact, yeah. the, you know, the, the, obviously the people who'd been in the forces represented the full uh, range of, you know, people who were old school and people who were really compassionate and mm. uh, very progressive in terms of their, their interactions. So in terms of your research, it's easy for us to see how, how that was appealing for you to understand that experience more. But can you tell us about how you conducted your research and kind of like where you see that, that research going? Yeah, of course. I, um, I spent a long time on the design of the research, actually, because I was very aware that there might be some difficult conversations and difficult experiences as well as the ethical process so I sought out quite a flexible method that would allow those that I talked to to guide our conversations so I I used visual and narrative methods um, mainly photo and object elicitation which I would recommend uh, to people doing qualitative research It's, it's a great method and what it involves is essentially asking people to bring around 10 meaningful objects or items with them to the interview and that structures what we talked about. Um, I usually start with tell me about what you brought today. Uh, So every interview was different, I didn't necessarily know what I'd be talking about. Yet across those various different conversations these strong themes kept emerging and that's where the kind of rigour of the method, to me anyway, uh, the strength of it that even when you've got these kind of quite loosely guided conversations, there was these quite strong themes and and points that people wanted to talk about that cut across all these interviews. And that's where I started to to work around the findings and and analysis about those similar experiences and the differences. In terms of the objects and photos, what it did, I think, is disrupt the way that we often tell stories. We tell stories often in narrative, uh, linear ways. We like to do things in kind of chronological order sometimes because that's how we've experienced them. But the objects and photos disrupted that really well and, and it, people often presented their experience in a certain way and then once we talked about the photos, it, it, it got unpacked and it got messy and people went back and remembered things. And I got a lot of access to experiences, particularly in the battlefield, that I, I don't think I would have done if those images weren't there because there's somewhat of a distance. When people are talking about a photograph, they're not necessarily talking about themselves, so they can go into a little bit more of those difficult conversations because it's a little bit more removed. Um, it also allowed me to trace some of the kind of social networks that people have either still got from military service the people and friends that they're in touch with people called the death photo as as well as those dark which was a kind of collection of soldiers stood smiling at the camera often in their desert gear in in afghan or iraq and they'd go through one by one and talk about who who each person was where they are now and, and whether they made it home or if things happened to them to them during that transition and and maybe people took their own lives 
in civilian life as well. So it opened up quite raw conversations and allowed this very in-depth insight into the whole life course rather than just looking at military service onwards. Um, I suppose in terms of analysis, I use a lot of theoretical framework because the, the data was so rich that it cut across so many life experiences and uh, and parts of the life course that one theory wasn't enough. Um, so I use a lot of Bourdieu's work around thinking about moving between social fields and the different types of capital, resources, if you will, that people might need when they're going through this period of change. As well as more critical theory like social harm theory, which looks at not just things that are necessarily harm in terms of legal frameworks or law, or crime, but how everyday suffering might be connected to state institutions. And that allowed this kind of continuum of harm throughout people's life course to become visible and for me to anchor that to some form of sites of violence, if you will. Um, social suffering or, or ordinary suffering, as, as Bourdieu would call it. Um, so, yeah, things like poverty and austerity then came into the focus of, of these interviews and people were talking in, in 2016, especially around things like the Chilcot report that was happening into Iraq and, you know, researching the, the justifications of war, which then ex impacted their experience of transition uh, and disrupted some of those stories around violence, I suppose, that they've believed for a long time. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I, I hope that answers your question in terms of my, my research methods. And Yeah, no, but, it's, but also it's quite an unusual... Um, yeah. methodology it seems and and I was also wondering whether it 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 perhaps seems particularly fitting for mm -hmm. an area where it does seem as though memorabilia um holds particular um value and meaning for people who've been in the forces or is that just a stereotype mm -hmm. um no I, I think you're spot on um the the memorabilia and, and often people that brought things they, they'd say oh, I'm, I'm not meant to have this <laughs> you know I took this because it, it means so much to me so yeah there's a lot of there's a lot of military culture, but also regimental history and culture that, that forms those military identities. And, and that, again, is different for each person and, and their role. Um, and you get then insights into the, the military institution through these objects. And people say about, oh, you know, my beret. They'll talk about what they had to do to earn that. Um, you get these, yeah, quite unusual and rare insights in terms of methodology, I think, through, through the object. Um, yeah. so they, one, of the, one of the most um, sad, I think, mm. and striking passages in one of your papers uh, in relation to Oliver and David was how they often referred to things that they'd lost, yeah. lost through periods of homelessness and lost through transitions from Civvy Street into prison and out again, and that sounded terribly sad, really. Yeah, yeah. Um... It's interesting you picked up on that because every person that's read that article has, has said the same, actually, that that, that passage almost kind of stopped them. Um, and, and it was, in the interviews, it was very painful, the way that people talked about objects uh, and, and photographs, things that they'd like to have shown me, things that they'd like to have brought, but because of these continuous movements, as you've said, between homelessness, imprisonment, military institutions and imprisonment as well the glass house was mentioned a few times that these sentimental things not just lose their value but they're lost yeah they we, we people struggle 
to hold on to these these things and I think that also reveals something quite deep about the institutions that we put human beings in and and that almost stripping of, of humanity and history that goes along with an individual was was very striking through that method actually it, it kind of hyper-focused in on on just what it means to to live from institution to institution really especially as we know um objects help, help people make transitions don't they so mm. to then be in the position of not having those those objects there yeah and family photos and and a lot of these were before we had kind of smartphones and things where where often a physical photograph was that that was the photo once that's lost it's lost so pictures of family especially those that are no longer with us that that was very difficult for people uh, for Oliver and David um yeah and it, and it it led to many more conversations about you know just how difficult it was for people to be imprisoned and leave imprisonment as well i think Naomi and i often find in having these conversations that something is stirred up within ourselves so uh, reading your mm. papers got me thinking about my own family and actually there's very little military uh, uh, experience mm. in in my family uh, although I did have an uncle who served in both world wars but I have other relatives mm -hmm. who were in the services and, and, and friends and what I notice about them is that they're even though it's years in the past they're it's a bit like you know people who have a circle of friends that they made at university so often their point of reference yeah. are the group of comrades that they, they they worked with during their spell in the forces so I mean I was wondering um, I mean that's obviously a bit of a, a meander there but <laughs> I like a meander thinking about uh, what what your research tells you is it your view that military service can have a profound or disabling effect on the on life after service i don't think i could say one or the other i think probably a bit of both um it's interesting that you've you know said that people often talk about this period and no matter the length of service of those that i spoke to the military was the most defining part of their life course, whether they were in that for a year or, or 20 years. And that is quite powerful, I think, that we've got this experience um, that I suppose is profound. You know, you've, you are, as, as people said to me, you're fundamentally broken down as a human being and you're built back up in, in a way that the military needs you to be. So through, through basic training and then your trade training you become a militarised body and mind. And that can be a great strength in many ways, especially while you're in the in the armed forces. But it can potentially have this disabling effect on life after because depending on where, where you leave to, if the social conditions in, in which you, you live and maybe work after military service don't fit that militarization then you might have struggles and tensions just just in everyday life existing because you're kind of operating from a different perspective to as they call civvies so that's not to say it can't ever change or, or be re-broken down but at the moment there is nothing that the armed forces offer when people leave to to fundamentally unbreak that training 
Um, and, and that is, is that kind of point at which it's often not discussed. People just leave, they get a job, and they're considered as a successful transition within state measures of, of successful transitions anyway, which is if you've got a job six months after leaving the armed forces. And what I argue is that it's much more, more complex than getting a job. Getting a job is very important after the armed, armed forces, but the, the culture and, and the way that bodies and minds are shaped must kind of either adapt, which could, can be painful, or people need to find either, like we've said about people working in imprisonment, uh, they might have to find f social fields where they're already aligned. So working in the kind of services, fire brigade, a lot of those that I spoke to worked in, or probation, imprisonment, where they're kind of already quite well adapted. Do you think that... The, some of the, when people struggle with the transition, do you think that that is about you know the state institution letting them down in a way, or do you or do you think sometimes that might be a difficulty that's been deferred by virtue of having had a period where there's a lot of structure and stability? So if mm. they hadn't joined the forces, might that do you think that might have might have happened anyway? You know, are we attributing something to the to the forces experience or yeah, do you see what I mean? Yeah, again, I don't, I don't think I can give a straightforward answer and I don't think that's a bad thing. It's messy and it's complicated. And what I try to do through my work anyway and through social harm is, is to trace the state, whether that be the military institution, whether that be the care system or whether that be conditions of poverty. So I think th there's definitely, we need to hold the military to account, I think, within their their traces on, on people and, and the support that's available afterwards, I think that is important. And for, for too long, I would argue that's, that's not happened. There's also another angle to that in that the, the military specifically target people that are living in, in poverty and, and socioeconomic disadvantage for, for those frontline violent facing roles as well. So it's not a coincidence that we have people that maybe, as the Howard League report in 2011 found, those that are imprisoned with, with military service don't appear to differ too much from, from the general imprisoned population in that the, these are often people that have family histories of poverty, maybe involvement with the care system, bereavement, you know, loss of, of family members, difficulties, essentially. But they might just be imprisoned at a later part of their life because military service has kind of acted as a buffer. So, yeah, I think there's, there's a definite potential disruption of the military um, and, and pathways into criminalisation. But as you've said, there's, there's a life before that as well, and, and we can't blame necessarily the military per se, but what I'd argue is that we need to think of, of military service as a continuum of state interaction, that people that are joining the forces to escape poverty, that's also uh, a touch with the state, you know, we, we don't have to have our population living in certain conditions. Um, so yeah, it, it's complex, I think there's some people that, yeah, probably would have ended up being involved with criminal punishment regardless of military service, it might have delayed it, but I do think the the, the kind of figures around people that have overwhelmingly been imprisoned for violent and sexual related offences we have to connect that to the military institution and those cultures of masculinity and, and trained violence I don't think we can divorce it 
but it sounds like there's you know there's some negligence as well in terms of not actually understanding mm. the the impact of of being in the military better um and how it interacts with all of those different variables yeah that that's what i mean when i'd say the kind of more ordinary everyday experiences of transitioning from the armed forces that is i think it's too easy to place our attention on the extremes on people that end up imprisoned or or people that end up you know needing help with with ptsd i'm not entirely convinced from from what i've seen and heard that the military want to understand Um, i'm happy to be proved wrong there (laughs) um but there does seem to be quite a a clinical detachment once people leave that they've kind of left um and unless you've you've got access to quite specific resettlement packages, maybe through injury uh, or, or loss, it, it can be quite challenging to access the support that the military offers. And they do offer a lot. You know, I don't want to be negative here. There's a lot of, of good things that they're doing. But often, like I said, it, re- it relies on that opt-in basis. And they've often trained people not to do that. So sometimes, as one guy said to me, we, we need a bit of a push. You know, we need a bit of a nudge into, into support. Um, yeah. So I'm not sure you were absolutely clear on this particular point, Hannah. But do, do you think <laughs> that veterans are disproportionately represented within the uh, prison system and you did describe how you thought they they shared a kind of common background broadly speaking but what about proportions yeah there's been there hasn't been many recent statistics produced so i can't you know confidently say that it is still disproportionate but back in 2008 and 2009 when the National Association of Probation Officers produced a number of reports, they identified at least 20,000 former military personnel serving a sentence in England and Wales, which places them at a disproportionate level within imprisonment. Now, th- there's all kinds of issues with statistics, as, as we all hopefully know. Um, I'm not sure if we measure any other profession in prisons in that way, so there might potentially be a bit of a, a skew in that, but... From what we do know and, and what we continue to know, those that are in prison that have military experience are overwhelmingly in prison for violent and, and sexual related offences. So there's a disproportionate element there, as well as the numbers in general. And, and that's without all those people that don't declare themselves as a veteran. So when people enter criminal punishment systems, they're now asked, as a, as a result of the NAPO report in 2008 and nine, they're now asked, have you ever served in the armed forces? Now, those that I spoke to, several of them said, well, no, I I wouldn't identify myself or or I didn't. It wasn't until I left imprisonment and needed housing that I I kind of declared that. So even the figures that we have, we we don't know how representative they are of of what's happening on the ground. And and if they do identify themselves, Mm. what, what happens then? Well, this is an area that I'm only on the fringes of there's there's other people that can probably answer that better than I can but it, it essentially from what I understand it to be it's it's a way of then channeling and signposting people into supportive w- veteran specific services I suppose so we have things like veteran wings where former military personnel might be housed together uh, in certain sites of, of 
prisons um, or even just putting them in touch. If the prison, for example, has a peer mentor that's a veteran, they can be put in touch with those people. So in one sense, I think it's intended to be a pathway in, into specific support. But what those that I spoke to who have been in prison said is that it often led to increased risk management. It often led to people, because they're assumed that they're violent because they're a former military personnel, they're a veteran, even if people have or haven't been trained in violence, they might be subject to increase uh, risk-related uh, processes. So things like more, more time locked up in cells, the kind of readiness to put people in isolation for you know, disagreements that happen there. Um, and then there, there is a kind of continuation of when people leave as well, imprisonment, that, that there's third sector charities, there might be housing that, that people can be put in touch with. Um, but as, as far as I'm aware, there is no joined up national approach or process. And that is where the problems lie, that we're asking this question, have you ever served in the armed forces, without clear and, and evidenced ways of responding to that kind of disclosure. Can you, can you say a little bit about um, what you've referred to as doubly bad and doubly sad in terms of your findings for those who are in prison? Yeah, doubly bad and doubly sad uh, plays on a kind of feminist, doubly deviant framework where people have essentially not only broken the law, but they've broken some form of cultural norm um, or militarised norm. So doubly bad was Oliver, who had been imprisoned for a, a sexual-related offence and was seen as kind of almost doubly risky because not only had he committed this, this sexual-related offence that, that m meant he was under quite restrictive community supervision, but he'd also potentially been framed as, as in risky because he was a veteran sex offender that he maybe had this layer of, of risk and violence connected to military service, even though he'd served as a chef in the Navy. So he was actually never delivered violence in that sense. He was still managed as, as doubly bad, doubly kind of risky. In terms of doubly sad, that relates to framings of PTSD, where David, who I spoke to, he was, he, he was trained as a frontline infantry soldier, and he was on standby for Iraq and Afghanistan, but he was never actually posted there. And so even though he hadn't been to war, his depression and his struggles with mental health were framed as kind of doubly sad uh, through this lens of, of PTSD and through this kind of militarised way of thinking about mental health. He could only have suffered depression if he was posted to war, was, was what he kind of felt. And he had to then routinely kind of explain that he hadn't served uh, in in those conflicts and that brought for him brought a lot of shame as well so it's these again these extremes where experiences are kind of heightened through this lens of being a veteran offender so to speak yeah i think it's really interesting the shame really comes through in those accounts i think and we know that shame is a key factor in mm. kind of like in undermining good mental health, isn't it? You know, if people have yeah. strong experiences of shame. Mm. Yeah, definitely. And regardless, I think, of where people serve in the military, that there is still this embodied um, 
pride, whether that lasts when, when people leave, but there is this kind of quite strong sense of, of pride, whether, not necessarily anchored to the kind of state and nation, but to each other more often than not, I think, to the team and the regiment and the, the people that you served with. And so criminalisation directly kind of butts up against that militarised pride. And um, again, that's part of being doubly bad. You've not only broken the law, you've, you've gone against the military pride. Um, so, yeah, shame is, is a really interesting and important part of my research that I'm still untangling um, and, and also connected to the wars that people served in as well. But, yeah, within David and Oliver's experiences being labelled, governed and managed as a veteran offender brought a lot of shame on them as individuals and also their families as well. So I'm, I'm, I'm aware that um, I missed out on asking you a question earlier on, although you referred to it. So do you have some family background in the, uh, the forces yourself? I don't, not personally. Um, my granddad was actually a, a conscientious objector, um, so he was a pacifist, so kind of the opposite of, of a military family. But like I said, my ex-husband was ex-military, so I, for a number of years, had a, an insight into the former military personnel world and, and that transition in terms of lived experience, both from him and from people that I was lucky enough to make friends with as well, former soldiers. So, yeah... I, I come from it from two quite uh, different angles, really, and I suppose that's reflected in my research that it's a continuously complex issue that I refuse to make simple <laughs> uh, in in these kind of quite binary understandings. Yeah. Well, yes, it may not be simple, but you do have some very <laughs> catchy phrases in your papers. But yeah, I've written a lot of phrases. I try to make things memorable where possible. But I was wanting to know about your theoretical approach because you've been developing a line of theory which you call uh, combat capital. Mm. So what do you mean by that? Combat capital is a framework that I'm developing to understand the various resources that are militarised and embodied at the point of basic training and beyond during military service and how those resources must be transitioned or, or adapted to a civilian life. So it's a way to think about kind of the traces of, of the military institution on the way that people navigate the world. Um, so like a, a form of currency, I argue that combat capital fluctuates um, depending on, on the context in which it was formed and then in which people try to use it. So it's broadly made up of capital that we might be familiar, so social capital, the relationships uh, that we hold and the benefits or pitfalls that, that can come from that. Cultural capital, which is our kind of ways of understanding the norms of society or, or the institution. Human capital, which is broadly our kind of skills, our aspirations, our health and our well-being, as well as bodily capital, so the, the, the ways that the military trained people to use their bodies either violently or otherwise. And then this kind of symbolic capital, the the value that we place as a society onto military service and that kind of veteran status. And when we look at all that within the context of war, it appears to take on a different level of value. So combat capital tries to capture how these militarised resources become deepened in a period of conflict where people are actually delivering the things that they've been trained to do. And that allows us 
in the same process to not only look at individual experience but then refocus back out to the state and hold that kind of the state within account within our analysis and thinking that the, the so-called justifications for war making that happen at this quite macro state level have very real lived experience uh, implications so if, if people are unable to narrate the war that they've served violence in for example the war on terror the a strong theme of my research and this is what i'm working on at the moment through combat capital is is how the inability for people to narrate the violence that they delivered in afghanistan and iraq has everyday lived tensions for those people because they're continuously moving in this body that's delivered violence yet without being able to to frame and justify those traces of, of violent action and that must be very very difficult and even just from the interviews the pain of sometimes people reflecting on war in a civilian setting you know when you're in the military you can have these frames of war as Judith Butler refers to them that frame certain life as grievable or not through military culture through justifications of war when people leave that's disrupted by a range of things and civilian life and so combat capital tries to capture how for example a world war ii veteran might hold much more positive currency from that war than maybe veterans of iraq and afghanistan do unless you're in a veteran setting and, and then combat capital from iraq and, and afghan might even be more van valuable because of the complexity of that war so it tries to look at war and military service from a range of different points from these different resources and then hopefully offer some analysis and, and kind of critique around warfare in a general sense and what that means for people that they have to live with the consequences of that violence on a daily basis. So it sounds as if it's quite a nuanced mm. concept really and presumably also has some meaning for a kind of internal regard as well as external yeah. value yeah and the aim of it is to try and ultimately a lot of my work is to try and help support veterans transitioning I want to try and draw attention to the many different points at which, di which difficulties might occur but also the strengths that might come from military service as well so if you've got this very strong social capital that values people it values teams it values loyalty that's all great and if, and if you can find a place where that fits in civilian life you're going to excel and that's going to be really really fantastic for people and, and for us as civilians as well we need more of that teamwork we're often quite individualized as a society and the military's in opposition to that they, they don't think of themselves necessarily they think of the team they think of bigger goals so that's a positive way that combat capital can flow into civilian settings but I suppose what it tries to do is to think about the resources that people might need help with transitioning, like cultural capital. We pay attention to social capital within drug settings and, and addiction-related services. We think about the networks people have uh, and how those might help or hinder those journeys. We very rarely pay attention to cultural capital or even bodily capital. For example, one, uh, well, a number of people actually said that they have to engage in very, very intense exercise regimes to get rid of the aggression that has been kind of trained into them. And, and if they can do that healthily, brilliant, you know, but that often meant people doing multiple hours a day of exercise, 
one person who ended up living in Brussels, I think he used to do four or five hours a day uh, of, of exercise. He used to go out on his lunch and run in the woods. But when those healthy and, I suppose, legitimate in terms of criminalisation, when those avenues don't exist, that's potentially when problems might occur because those embodied resources of the military, such as aggression, that you can switch on and off like that, if they get triggered in settings that are, you know, for example, a pub, that, that's going to end, end, end up in criminalisation potentially. So, yeah, it's a way to think about both individual transitions and how as a society we can help understand those in, in more complex ways than currently exist anyway. Thank you. I'm, I'm sure actually there's a lot more we could <laughs> unpack perhaps at some later mm. time. But I get the feeling you think there are broader social and political issues at, uh, at play and you've talked about the changing nature of mm-hmm. war and also the effects of austerity. How do these come into your criminological study area? A good question. Um, I suppose a lot of what I do is grounded in those issues actually rather than them being a kind of secondary uh, touch point the, the, they've guided a lot of what I do so in terms of the change in nature of warfare we often use the second world war as our main understanding of war when actually that's quite a unique conflict in the, in the long 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 history of warfare um, where there's a general consensus that that was the kind of right thing to do and, and that there was almost no other option is so that war and that combat capital if you will it is often quite positive and valued and we, we continuously refer back to that war um, when, when we're thinking about military service and, and veterans but actually warfare as we know it now it is characterised by a blurring by unclear uh, aims, motivations even the enemy of, of the war on terror is not necessarily clear where they are who they are, what it is, how we defeat terror, I mean terror is a noun yeah, it's an abject noun that we've waged war on so inherently the, the warfare that comes from those kinds of justifications is going to be complex and maybe never-ending, as we're finding, because how do we win against terror? What does that look like? What does it feel like or mean? It's forever shifting. And so we've got this blurring of boundaries between war and crime, where we often talk about the war on terror uh, in terms of criminal punishment language and, and criminals, yet with, with war. We also have this blurring of boundaries around state and non-state actors. It's not always clear in the battlefield who people are and, and who they're fighting for. And I suppose it's spilled over in, in ways that we haven't necessarily seen before, um, especially social media, I think, where we can see things in real time in ways that we started to see in the kind of 90s and the Gulf War, um, but it's become much more... Uh, difficult to to talk about war as this kind of understandable, clear thing. So fourth generation warfare, which military commentators argue we're in now, is characterised by cyber warfare and disease. Interestingly, within the context that we're in at the moment, I won't say any more on that. But um, yet we've still got this old fashioned kind of boots on the ground presence in warfare as well. So we've got kind of quite detached drones and and technological ways of killing now and again I'd love to speak to people that have experienced 
that side of warfare as well. But we also still have this kind of on the ground, boots on the ground, yet without the clear definition of who the enemy is. Then I suppose when you talked about austerity, to kind of jump, all of that complexity and chaos around war is carried into potentially uh, complex living arrangements amid austerity as well. So these bigger, broader political issues, I don't think we can and should divorce from, uh, especially militarised transitions, but research more generally. Um, people don't exist in vacuums. We we exist in relation to many things and, and the social times that we're in. And for many of those that I spoke to, they joined to escape the conditions of poverty. That's why they joined the military, right? And it temporarily helped with that regard. But then they left to even worse conditions that they joined up from. So the, they often leave to the same areas that they grew up in or, or similar areas. People are battling poverty, they're battling homelessness, but with this additional layer of militarization. So those social conditions that both guide warfare and, and those justifications for war making are also the context that people then leave in. Sorry, go on. I suppose there's all sorts of other complexities as well, aren't there? It's like the frequent geographical location and dislocation from a community, therefore, mm. uh, which obviously differs from force from force to force. Mm. Um, and and also um, yeah, yeah. living arrangements whereby the serving personnel might be away from home for long periods of time, so the rest of the family have to function without the person absent. So there's a lot of factors yeah. which I think can contribute to, like their level of marital breakdown is quite high in the forces isn't it I believe? Very high yeah um, and and even afterwards like myself you know uh, I never knew my ex-husband in the military but but his military experience was definitely a factor uh, within that kind of breakdown of, of relationships and like you said there's there's a continuous dislocation for military families and I think there's rightly more attention being placed on the experiences of those family members as well. Um, they're often overlooked. In all of this, they continuously kind of pick up the pieces, if you will, and, and, and help transitions on a micro scale, like you said, moving in and out of postings, especially for reserve forces as well. We're shifting towards a, a majority of reservists, uh, and they are even potentially more so uh, subject to this continuous toing and froing between social conditions um yeah it's, it's complicated <laughs> yeah and I wondered whether so we obviously we've you know see quite a lot in the media about um training specifically mm -hmm. I, I suppose particularly the army I guess you know with all the um deep cut barracks mm -hmm. stuff and how brutal um the the, re the training regime might be I wondered whether yeah. any of the people in your studies spoke about you know, having encountered in prison people who spoke about being bullied yeah. within the forces, whether that had cropped up at all in terms of trauma for people. Yeah, one one person specifically, and that was David, who was in the kind of article that, that you've read, um, he experienced basic training as a very, very painful period of his life course. He entered dependent on a, a number of substances. Um, he entered straight from the care system, at the age of 16 as well, and he, he says with a lot of baggage, um, but he, he was what we'd probably call quite a vulnerable person, really, um, and then subject to this quite masculinised, violent environment. And, and yeah, his 
his a lot of his mental health struggles were he traced back to that period and we often talk about PTSD well he hadn't been to war but he had a lot of trauma from from training the others that I spoke to all talked about the violence of training and basic training some of them said you know it might have changed now I don't know um, but definitely when when they were uh, young people joining the military it, it was characterized by violence but a lot of them really enjoyed that um, and this is as researchers often we have our own perceptions of what that might mean but but for many of, of those people that went on to serve in in war they kind of said that had they not have been brutalized in that way then they're not entirely sure if they'd have been able to do their job as effectively um, and this is why I try and say we need to keep an eye on the military institution because ultimately what what training does is it it prepares bodies for violence it prepares bodies to kill and that is not a, a natural state of existence so you've got to do a lot of rupturing in people's uh, mental and physical uh, states I suppose to achieve that and that's what's not undone when people leave um so yeah I think the va sorry go on <laughs> no, I was just, sorry, I was just thinking it raises really strong concerns around ethics, doesn't mm. it? But also, like, I guess, like the prison service, yeah. it's not a transparent organisation. It's no. it's very closed, mm -hmm. and that's fine when everything's going well, but actually, when there are concerns about practices, yeah. it's easy to cover up and, yeah. um, and hide things that, that need to be exposed and spoken about. Yeah, and... And it's hard to do that, you know, sometimes it's it can be uncomfortable um, to, to call into question some of these institutions that, you know, we, we hold up as being kind of quite important within our society. Um, I mean, even in basic training, that there's an obscuring of numbers around people that take their own lives during that process. There's um, a colleague, Ross McGarry, he's done some work around uh, looking at the military as a workplace and there's people that often well there's people that die just from like heat heat exhaustion you know the the, the physical pushing of the body to prepare people for for war might even lead to deaths before warfare occurs um there's there's kind of reports of people dying uh, up north you know when they go and train up in the hills and things so like you said it's a closed institution that for for a long time has been able to keep that level of, of closure uh, around what happens inside uh, and it's only when we a bit like imprisonment when we start to talk to people and and, and their lived experience that we get a, a broader sense of of what actually goes on in in that space and even then i'm sure there's loads that they didn't tell me and <laughs> um, being a, a female i think did uh, as a researcher created a certain angle of, of they talked to me about certain things and maybe not as much about the violence as they, they would have done either to a for, another former military personnel or maybe even a male researcher, I, I, I don't know, but they still did really want to talk about the violence. Um, and interestingly, a lot of the people left the military once they became parents or, or when they found out they, be, they were going to become parents and they tried to explain that that kind of life of of violence wasn't compatible with how they wanted to parent and I thought that was really interesting um that yeah whilst you're in it's 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 a one particular set of experiences but it shapes it shapes things in ways that people might be actually quite reluctant to to do um yeah thank you
you've often written that uh, activism uh, part, plays an important part in, in, in your working life. I, I was wondering what you actually meant by that and how do you, um, how do you, um, um, what's the word I'm trying to find here, how does that become accommodated to your academic world? In other words, how do you avoid mm. the accusation of just being a lefty academic? um yeah I mean I don't know if I can avoid that I probably will be labeled that um but activism to me is about kind of standing up speaking out using whatever privilege we have to to stand against injustice and that's something that I've been grounded in since I was born um always questioning and challenging recognizing that our position is just one position and that there's many other people who might not have the kind of privilege to be able to exist in the, in without struggle or even speak about these kind of injustices. So to me, activism is about challenging language. It's about using your body in, in places that can help bring about social change. So things like attending protests is something that I've always done, uh, even from being a child, been on picket lines and things like that. Uh, when when necessary and also I suppose in terms of my academic life and work it's about embodying the things I write about I don't just call these injustices out I, I actively take steps to try and correct them uh, in ways that I have control over um, so I suppose it shapes my teaching and my research interests because uh, everything I am is angled towards bringing about social justice if possible uh, in different ways um, and, and knowing that it's a kind of ripple effect. Activism is like planting seeds to me. You don't necessarily know when they're going to grow. You don't know how well they're going to flourish. Uh, but nonetheless, we keep going and we, and we, we keep moving, uh, knowing that it's a long struggle. Um, so, yeah, in terms of how it fits with my work, I'm lucky that within criminology, there's, I'm not the only one. There's lots of us who approach it in a similar way. I work at an institution where I've been able to do that, and I'm joining an institution where I can continue to do that. Uh, and that, for me, is, is a benefit of academia, that I can uh, bring these two worlds together, the, the writing and the activism. Thank you, Hannah. Hannah, your research methods have involved you looking at images and talking with people who've had really quite horrific experiences. Has that affected mm-hmm. you at all? How, how have you coped with that? Yes, it has affected me. Um, and for a long time, I, I, to be honest, I, I don't know if I did cope, actually. Um, I mean, what, I think one of the things that makes my research as, as powerful as it can be sometimes is, is that I, I got into the data, in a, probably in an, an unhealthy way, but that meant that I was so close to the stories and the words of the people that I spoke to. I felt them. I still feel them. And I think that allowed me to analyse those experiences in ways that maybe a detached researcher might not um, so I suppose I stored a lot of it in my body, which is interesting because the people that I talk to, they often talk about, you know, back and chest issues and, and I learned, I had to learn through secondary trauma, how, how that is stored in the body and a lot of chest and, uh, heart related tension, uh, is something that I had for a long time. And it wasn't until I'd handed in my PhD and kind of realized I'm not okay 
these things, I was getting nightmares. Again, very interestingly reminiscent of, of PTSD. Uh, so I, I actually got therapy and saw a brilliant person who, who did timeline therapy which, with me, which was, when we talk about visuals, that's often a visual method of, of therapy, going back and imagining you in these memories and replaying them and, and kind of removing the pain from those, accepting that they're always going to be with you. Um, like those that I spoke to, you can't... One guy said to me, Hannah, you can't unsee, you can't unhear that shit. <laughs> and, and that's something that I, I had to learn. So, yeah, it's been an interesting roller coaster of an experience, but I think having the data affect me in that way, you know, personally keep me awake, I think is a really a good thing of the research, actually, that I cared so deeply that I didn't become detached from the violence because it's very easy, even within interviews, things that might have shocked you at the start, you know, talking about war and, and what happens there and, you know, even people openly discussing breaking the Geneva Convention and things like that were shocking at the start. Within interview three, four, that had already become quite normalised. So in ways that participants said violence becomes normal, I experienced that from a kind of detached position. Um, so, yeah, I suppose coping with it now, I'm much more open about the harm, really, and I, I share how difficult it is. Um, but for me, there wasn't the infrastructure where I was working to support that. So I think that didn't help mm -hmm. necessarily, uh, yeah, that process. What, what you can hear within your research is your passion for the subject and really rooting for the people with lived experience. You know, you've, you've as you read your, your research, you sound very much on the, on their side. Um, not that you're not critiquing or, or taking a theoretical, um, look at what they're talking about, but you can hear, um, you holding in mind their well-being at the heart of, of what you're trying to do. And related to that, how do you look after your, yourself and ensure your own mental and emotional well-being more generally and, and going forward? I suppose that's something I'm still continuously working on. I don't have the answer yet, um, but I've, I've become a lot better at creating some distance from my work. Um, and interestingly, with, with those that I speak to, the body is a key way in which I do that. So uh, things like basically nature, being outside as much as I possibly can, and being reminded at any point of, of how tiny we are in the grand scheme of, of the universe, not to get too, um, yeah, hippie, but there's, there's many, many ways that we can ground ourselves um, and remember that whatever is, is going on at the moment is temporary. You know, it will always pass. Nature has been here much longer than we are. It will continue to be there long after we uh, disappear. So, yeah, I do a lot of walking. I do a lot of trying to detach physically, from the spaces in which I work. Um, my desk, interestingly, my yoga mat that I used during my PhD, so every single morning, no matter how much sleep I'd had, sometimes it was only three hours, no matter how much sleep I had, I used to get up, get on my yoga mat, and I genuinely can't step on it anymore. Like, I've had to get a new one. It's it, There's something about that yoga mat that's anchored to that period of, of pain during my PhD. Um, so, yeah, yoga's a, a really good way, but like I said, I've got a new mat now that's helped. <laughs> Um, and also activism. Activism gives me hope um, because it's very easy to get sucked into all of the depressing realities of, of what we're living through collectively, uh, as well as in the research that I do. Um, part of, of criminology is often pointing out problems. <laughs> so it's, it's easy to get sucked into that kind of despair, I think. Whereas 
maintaining hope and activism, being among people that are fighting for social justice, that keeps me grounded and it's something I'm increasingly doing um, and that really helps to look after my well-being knowing that I'm actually doing something where I can. Yeah, it's really interesting to hear your references to the body because I think increasingly mm. you know talking therapies are becoming much more bodily focused yeah. in terms of addressing histories of of trauma but then also mm. to hear about your channeling your energy into trying to change something and, and how important that is but it's mm. been a really fascinating conversation with you today Hannah really oh. enjoyed it so thank you <laughs> thank you it's been yeah it's been a pleasure thank you thanks very much Hannah really great meeting you oh <laughs> well I'm always, always love to come back if you've got time <laughs> <laughs>